when we first started talking about doing this, we <laughs> it started. I thought I was thinking it was going to be more like a, a small group, to be honest with you, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and and uh, actually, if you want to be brutally honest about it, I just thought I was going to be meeting with my in-laws, <laughs> and uh, so because this would happen was I, I had come back from a retreat, and um, I was they just happened to be coming over to our house, and they're probably going to be listening to this. And they were talking with me uh, about just you know their own journey because at, in their older older period in their life, after knowing them and for a number of years, they've they've really made a decision to begin drawing near to the Lord, and they've been going to the primarily the, the Merced campus, and it's been a, I mean it's been an amazing thing for all of us. It's been a tremendous blessing for my wife, her father, and um, the, the the woman that we've only known as uh, the grandmother of our children. Uh, and they've been just, their hearts have been warmed and they wanted to just draw closer to God and it's been great. And anyway, I, I came back when I started having this discussion with them and in the context of that discussion, I, we just started talking about, I said, well, do you have a Bible? And, and, it, and you know, they've been coming for weeks and, and, and they didn't really have, have a Bible. And I said, well, do we know about the difference between the Old and New Testament? And we started talking. I said, well, do you know who Abraham is? And and how that relates to the New Testament. And, and so I said, you know, we're going to be talking about Paul. Do you know who Paul is? is who, what he was before he became an apostle. And, and it became apparent to me that, the, you know, these people who I hold in just genuine love and respect, they, and they were sincere, but they didn't know a lot about the Bible. And I said, you know what? After we were talking, and I, got, I was kind of rusty because I hadn't really talk foundationally about the Bible for a little, you know, I talk about the Bible all the time, but I used to do a lot more foundational classes and things like that, and I actually really enjoyed just talking about, ah, oh, this is how the Bible, let me go get some, let me, get me some, get some Bibles, I'll show you the, the difference between the translations a little bit, and let me talk about the little story about how it kind of moves through the Old Testament, and as we were talking together, I said, you know what, why don't we, why don't we have a, a, a study, you know, I thought, I'll just do that. And then it, it kind of morphed into, well, if I'm going to do that, I might as well open it up for people who are new in the Lord, and, and, and maybe they might want to learn a bit, a bit too. And then I thought, yeah, you know, I might as well open it up to the whole church and see if anybody would like to do it and just sharpen themselves up a little bit. And then I actually did something, and I think, it was, I think this is what God does to us sometimes. It went from the, yeah, that'd be a nice thing to do, to I really felt impressed to actually do it. So I committed to a date. And then we announced it. And you know how that works. Once you commit to something and you announce it, you're in. You're in. You, made, you, made, you did it. And then I had to say, OK, now what do we do, right? Because it wasn't as if we had prepared this. And we, we kind of, you know, typically our church, we spend a lot of time preparing for uh, something on the calendar. And everybody kind of knows. So this is a bit of, a, this is a bit of an ad hoc gathering. You've had a little bit of notice, but you know, not a lot, and even preparing for it has been just a quick kind of refresher uh, for myself. And so I've, I have a, a desire to approach it from a particular direction, and I have a particular purpose in mind, and I, I wrote some things down. I just kind of want to allude to them at the beginning of this, but it's just in terms of the purpose. Uh, my purpose in doing this is not apologetic. In the sense, I'm not trying to prove uh, the veracity of, of the Bible, per se. I'm not, it's not historical or scientific. So 
in the four intensive that we're doing here, this four-week intensive, the purpose is not to sort of defend the Bible and try to demonstrate why it's scientifically or historically accurate. I'm not trying to prove, this is important, I'm not trying to prove the Bible, although we're going to share some things that I think are going to enhance and reinforce its credibility. And I'm also going to have different books that we're going to highlight and make available to you. I mean, one of the things we decided to do was I'm going to talk along the way about the differences between Bible translations. And in our church, we use two primarily primary translations, and we've kind of recently sort of committed to a third one. And I'm going to talk about those three, but just quickly, these letters, which is so, so often part of Christian speak, all right? What version do you use? Oh, the NKJV. Oh, the NLT. In our, and then this other one that we're beginning to use, the ESV. Okay, those all represent words. And so they, 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 but yet they become part of the language. There are different translations, the New King James Version, which is kind of a, a, a modernized uh, version of the, of the, and I've got them sitting over there, uh, a modernized version of the old classic King James uh, Version of the Bible, which was oft, sometimes called the authorized version. And then we have a, a, a version that we like to use, a really nice modern translation that just basically takes the same uh, integrity of the, of the Greek manuscripts and translates it out a little bit differently, loses some of the majestic use of the words, but becomes a little bit more modern in its terminology. But the essence of it is, is very accurate as well. And that, that's the New Living Translation, the NLT that I often use. And then we've been, we've been also slowly working in the ESV which is a, a, a much newer version of the, of the Bible, and it's, uh, it's called the English Standard Version, and that's becoming actually more and more used in the church as well. And so just kind of being aware, aware of that, that we're going to be talking about a little bit different versions. And one of the things we did was I tried to get uh, purchased. We purchased at, at, and all we're going to be doing is make them available exactly for what we purchased them for, probably a little bit less but we're just trying to make them available so for as minimal cost as we possibly could. So that's the reason there's a table in the back. And what will happen is to, today, we just kind of have Bibles there that, you know, the, the cost of a, of a burger, honestly, you know, between 3 and $5 for a version of the Bible, if you want it. And just to be able to have it stick in your backpack, some might be a, a kind of more translation that you might enjoy reading parallel. Um, we'll talk about those things. The point is, they're there. We also have study Bibles available. Study Bibles, listen to me, the difference between a reading Bible is that it doesn't usually have any notes in it, no comments. It doesn't have any maps. It doesn't have what's called a, even a modest concordance, which is a way of listing scriptures so that you can find something in the Bible if you rec remember a word. I know a lot of this is, on, is online now and people can get it in their phones. You certainly can go that route. But I think there's still something about, at times, just having a very inexpensive way of quickly referencing something. And there's still something about uh, reading um, you know, paper that is ta it's tactile. So you know, I know I do some of my reading on, on, a, on a, a reader. And there are other types of reading that I really do like to still read. I like the feel of the paper. So, and, and there are certain things I can get rapidly, and I can read it in certain places. I mean, you don't really want to be reading an e-reader you know, near the water, for example, right? <laughs> but a book, you have a little bit more flexibility, I suppose. Uh, so you know, just kind of think about, there's a, oh, I said the study Bible. So a study Bible, which we also, we also got in those three same versions, 
as inexpensively as we could. We, we try to get them. Those study Bibles, and again, they, they tend to have a little bit differences because study Bibles will, will have in them things like maps or explanations from the editors on what certain passages might highlight. So they, and they might connect things and interpret some things. So uh, some of us may find that we want a, to, to have a study Bible. And we've, we've made a few of them available. We didn't have any idea what things would interest more, people more. Just having a, a quick kind of uh, Bible that you could just throw in a, in, a, in a sack or a purse or something just to have an addition to whatever thing you had electronically. You can read it. And we tried to do that. Or if you wanted at some point to really invest in a, in a sort of, um, I won't call it a beginner's, but a study Bible that has notes in it and gives perspectives. And then, let me just say this. So you have a reading Bibles, you have study Bibles, and then you have also what are called commentaries. And um, I don't have any of those uh, available, but as, as we go on, we're going to highlight also certain books that we're just going to have available that you can get. One of the books, uh, anyway, I'll talk about those things later. And then we're also going to be um, getting at some point use commentaries. Now, what a commentary does, it's, it's and again, now, if, if some of you are older in the Lord, you know, you know this, but commentary is a more even thorough explanation of, of, a, of a particular book, typically. So you might get a commentary from an author's perspective. They're giving you insight. Some commentaries are really committed to just kind of deciphering the exact meaning of the text or the passages, the scriptures. Other commentaries are what we call more devotional. And devotional commentaries tend to have applications and perspectives of an author that is, you know, just sort of taking time to sit with and apply principles uh, out of a passage. So some are more textual focused, some are more uh, focused on kind of just devotional, if, you can, if I can use that word. So we're going to talk about a lot of these things, but these are the type of things that we're going to get at. Now, again, I, I go back here and I say, let me just, this is really important at the beginning. My, my purpose is, is not so much to, to try to you know, prove the Bible um, because, and I'll mention this in a moment, but my purpose is to help those who really want to follow Jesus right now and who are already open, who are already hungry, who are already uh, expressing a sincere desire to grow spiritually and would, would like to have a better understanding of the Bible, how it's constructed, how it works, how to study it. So that's our focus. Anything else is going to be secondary. This is about encouraging all of us to understand and study the scriptures for our own benefit and for our knowledge base. Because it's really good, if we're going to follow and represent the Lord, to be able to explain what it is about the Bible that we appreciate, understand when questions come our way, to have a working knowledge of it, how to find your way through it. So you're going to need to have your Bibles um, through this, uh, these four weeks. And um, because it's an intensive and it's only four weeks, my plan is, for the most part, to uh, delineate with some mild exceptions, the, the focus to basically just an overview of the Older Testament. So after tonight, which I'll explain in a moment what we're going to be doing in you know, the 45 minutes to an hour that we're going to share, after this evening, this, this particular first opening study of the four, the next three are going to be devoted to understanding the expansive view of the Older Testament and how it relates to the New. And I'm going to talk about that to give us to look at the the books, 
uh, to look at the characters, the Bible characters, and to look at the geography of, of the Bible and to gain an appreciation for how the Old Testament relates to the New. That's one purpose. The other purpose will be to give everybody some practical ideas devotionally of how to study the Bible, ideas that people have about how they study, how they read, how they do their devotions. Different people have different ways of approaching it. And I'm gonna probably have a few different people share as a little piece of our intensive class just some, a, a way in which they have constructed what we call their, their devotional life. And so they'll be able to share tips that they have or ideas that they utilize as a way of keeping God's word alive and how they approach it, um, patterns of, of you know, things that have been very meaningful to them. And then you can decide on your own if, if you might want to try that. So you know, it's just going to be exposing us to different ways in which we can approach the scriptures. So kind of, so, and it's going to be a little older school in the sense that there are handouts that I'm just going to hand out. I might have a periodic illustration. I've already used, I mean, I almost shocked them when I said, can you pull out one of these for me, right? They said, what are you doing? What are you doing? You know? So I said, they said, you got to use the, I, the, I, the iPad. And I said, yeah, but it, I haven't really done that, that thing. That, and if I do it on the first night, I mean, I, I don't know. I don't want to take it. I just, you just, let me use the whiteboard, all right? I said, I'll be okay with it. I said, so anyway, today is a foundational Bible study. And um, I'm just going to jump in. And I, I had a, I think you, do all of you have that little handout there? You can see, just as a quick little, it says the Bible, quick little description. And I think I'll, I'll, I'm not gonna read through both of these, but I'm gonna start with this. It says, our Bible is a collection of extraordinary books that were written over a period of 14 or 1500 years. So the Bible as we know it, this Bible, it gradually grew into its compilation near the close of the first century AD as a collection of books. The Bible has been arranged in various ways throughout the years, through the years, but the order of the books in our English Old Testament goes back to the Greek version, which was called the Septuagint. And that Greek version that we utilize was widely used in the early church. That was their version of the, of the scriptures, was the Older Testament Greek version. There's a reason for that. Our New Testament writings are arranged according to a logical pattern. We're gonna look at that also a little bit. Although different orders can be found from among various manuscripts, because the scriptures are based on manuscripts that were copies of, the, of original writings. The languages of the Bible are three in number, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. And some of the Old Testament was written in Aramaic, but Hebrew was the predominant language. We'll talk about that a little bit more later. By the time of the first century, Greek had become a worldwide language, a lot like what English is today, which accounts for the New Testament being written in Greek. Now, we so when we say we translate it from the Greek, the English, all the English versions are translated from the Greek. So if something goes too far askew, it could be recognized as being something that you probably wouldn't use if you were committed to a consistent biblical approach that has been there for centuries from the beginning. So what we have is we have a clear pattern to work off of. So even if something is translated into a different language, you can tell if it's deviating off course from the original because the original is there for us. The, the original copies of those manuscripts are there for us in Greek to work off of. So someone says, well, what does it say in the Greek? They're digging in a little bit even more deeply because perhaps Greek might have certain nuances that uh, English might not have. And, and we could talk about that later as well. But what I wanted to do was I was thinking, and, this, and in this particular evening, what we're going to do is 
we're actually going to we're going to use the Bible study. We're going to have a Bible study as a means of laying a foundation. So we're actually going to go to certain places in the Bible, in the New Testament in particular, look at it, and then sort of make the connection between what we're reading and our larger focus of discussion. So we're actually going to do a Bible study while we learn how to study the Bible, which is great. Now, so what I'd like us to do is turn to Acts, the eighth chapter. So if you can get your Bibles out, we'll turn to Acts 8. Now, in Acts 8, we're going to look at verse number 4, because, you know, I was, I was looking at this, I was thinking about this passage, right? And I was pretty excited about it because I was going, Lord, how do, how do, how do you want me to, to approach this uh, class? You know, is there, is there a way that I should approach it? And I was, I was thinking and praying about it, and, it, and this incident came to my mind, and I thought, oh, it's perfect, it's perfect, because... Our focus is going to be on connecting the old and the new. And there's this one incident that occurred that is such a great template for what we're trying to do. And some of us will really relate to it. But if nothing else, it will set the table for what we're about to do together. So if we can, let's go to Acts 8. We're going to look at verse 4. It says, therefore, uh, those who were, and I'm reading out the New King James Version. All right. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. And then Philip, who was an elder or a deacon in the early church, he went down, an amazing preacher, by the way, he went down to the city of Samaria, preached Christ to them. And in Samaria, to everybody's shock, it says, this is, you know, this is Acts is after the resurrection of Christ. You know, this is the church is beginning to move out now. It says, the multitudes with one accord um, heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. And then it says there was this great joy in that city. And if you were to read on, you would see that there was an amazing, the, the apostles were actually amazed that uh, a, a revival or a spiritual breakout had occurred in the region of Samaria. It was unexpected. It was not even in one of the original apostles that went to Samaria. Again, remember, Samaria was a place where there was real tension between Samaritans and the Jews. Remember that? Some of you may recall the incident when Jesus speaks with the woman at the well and that whole exchange. And Samaritans and Jews didn't get along well. And so it was Philip who went to preach, who was a leader, but he wasn't an apostle. And what happens is, to, to everybody's shock and surprise, there's a huge opening to the message of Jesus that occurs in Samaria. And then the apostles, they're given word and they make their way. But in the middle of this, what we'll call this kind of spiritual awakening that's occurring in Samaria, God does something. And in the book of Acts, there's a lot of these supernatural kind of are out of the ordinary ways in which God speaks to people through dreams, words. Uh, a lot of times he'll just prompt somebody in the Holy Spirit. We'll, we'll, again, we'll talk about those things a little bit later as we move, move into these, these sort of passages. But... It says that, uh, I'm trying to, let me me just kind of have us jump over to verse 26. Acts 8, verse 26. It says, Now an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, I want you to arise and go toward the south along the road which goes from Jerusalem to Gaza. And this is desert. So there is is some type of a a voice or some type of an instruction uh, that, Philip is given, which is fascinating because here he is the initiator of this huge awakening. He's the one that God uses as a catalyst 
to bring this huge opening to the message of Jesus. And in the middle of what was happening at its height, when you would think that would be the, the least logical time to go, the Lord says, I want you to leave Samaria in the middle of this thing that I know I used you to start. And through the angel says, I want you to go into the desert. And then something happens. It says that he arose and he went. And look at this, verse 27. And behold, there was a man from Ethiopia, an Ethiopian man. He was actually a eunuch. He was someone who worked in the court of Candace, who was the queen, and had a unique responsibility. We're told that he was a man of great authority. And he was in charge of all of her treasury, which means that he had the responsibility of managing her money and wealth. This was, and what we're told here is that he, though, was a believer in God. And he had actually, or at least he'd been felt the need to, to get closer to God, perhaps like some of us have felt. And he was sincere. And it says that he had actually gone to Jerusalem to worship. So this Ethiopian has a desire to deeply know God. And we're told that he was returning and he was sitting in his chariot. And can you imagine, imagine what's going on in your mind's eye? Here he is on a, let's just imagine a little obscure dirt, dirt road leading through the desert. And in the back of this, perhaps it was a small entourage. In the back is this um, Ethiopian uh, man of great authority uh, who's reading, we're told. Look at this. He's reading Isaiah the prophet. So he's reading from our book of Isaiah, which is one of the key Old Testament books. And that, that was their Bible. And he's reading out of the book of Isaiah, and it says the Spirit said to Philip, go near. So he feels this prompting and he, and that tells him to go near and, and catch up to that chariot that's there passing you by. And so here is Philip. He's coming from this amazing explosion in which you know, hundreds and perhaps even thousands of people are opening up their life to Christ. People are being baptized everywhere. Things are moving. Powerful things are happening. The apostles are coming from Jerusalem. Everybody's excited. It's one of the first real breakouts in the early church. And then all of a sudden, Philip's told, leave and go into the desert. And as he's in the desert, he's going, and then all of a sudden, the Lord says, There's a, I want you to catch up to that chariot over there at the precise time that the man that we, net, we call the Ethiopian eunuch is reading from the book of Isaiah. And watch the conversation that occurs. It says, I'm returning, and again, he was, it says, let's go overtake this chariot. And so Philip ran to him, ran to him, and he heard him. As he ran to him, he heard him reading from the Bible, from the prophet Isaiah. So he, evidently, the, the, the Ethiopian eunuch was reading out loud from the book of Isaiah, which was a common way of reading in their day. And Philip hears him reading, and look what he says. He says, it's a great question. He says, do you understand? Do you, first off, it's like, where did you come from, right? <laughs> Secondly, but he, doesn't, he says, did you understand? Do you understand what you're reading? Because I imagine him reading loud, and Phil's running up to him, and he says, do you understand what you're reading? And then he says the question that I really felt compelled by because I felt it set up everything we're trying to do. He said, how can I, unless someone guides me, and he asked Philip to come. Will you come and sit with me and, 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 and talk with me about this? And then we're told remarkably that the place in the scripture, he wasn't just reading anywhere. 
And it wasn't just happenstance. It was one of those God-ordained moments where he sets it up and crosses the path where one seeker is found by a messenger. And it's always fascinated me how God took Philip out of, a, out of a, an explosion where many, many people were, were opening their lives to Jesus and took him to reach one man who was sincerely seeking to understand something. His heart was good. He's clearly intelligent. There's no question. To be, to be in this position, to have that level of responsibility and authority was, was clearly an indication. This was not an issue of a lack of intelligence, but he was struggling to grasp how, what was actually happening in Isaiah. And it wasn't just the book of Isaiah. It was what we consider to be one of the most critical, profound, amazing prophecies in all the Bible. He was reading out of Isaiah 53. The place that he read, we're told in the scripture, was this. And we're told in verse 32. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent. And so he opened not his mouth. Now, as, you're reading, as we are reading this, I want us to be thinking about who do you think this is, this is talking about? So he's reading Isaiah in the older, the older, what that was their Bible, and he's reading it, and he's going, what does this mean? Because it's talking about, Isaiah's talking about Messiah, but he can't figure out what, what is going on. He says, look what he says, and, and it says, in his humiliation, his justice was taken away, and who will declare his generation for, for life is, is uh, you know, taken, it says here, from him. Um, for his life is taken from the earth, right? So this is passage that he's reading out of. And so the eunuch answered Philip and said, I ask you, can you tell me? I've been thinking about this. Uh, he's perplexed. He's, he's also frustrated. He's frustrated. He's trying to understand. And he says, can you tell me? I ask you, whom, whom is the prophet talking about? Is he talking about himself or some other person? I don't get it. I don't understand it. Can you explain this to me? Because it's been bugging me, and I don't understand what is going on here. And it says that Philip then opened up his mouth. That means he started talking. And look at what he says. And beginning with this scripture, and beginning with the scripture, he began to preach Jesus to him. And it says that it was such a, an amazing connection that Philip is using to explain the fact that what you're talking, what is being spoken of here is, is the Messiah who suffered for us, who has come. And he begins to unveil to him the story of Christ and the amazing thing that Jesus did on the cross and his resurrection. And look what happens. It says that as they went down the road, they came to some water. So evidently, Philip had included in his conversation that if you sincerely want to receive this Jesus whom I'm, who this scripture is talking about, the Messiah who has come, that you need to identify yourself with him and be baptized. And it says here that... Uh, he said, it says the unit said, whoa, 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 stop. There's some water right there. Um, what hinders me from being baptized? And look what Philip said. He says, well, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God. And so he commanded the chariot to stand still. Both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and he baptized him. And when he came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away and took him away somewhere. I mean, this is an amazing thing that we're reading here. It's all, it's, it's stunning. You want to talk about 
people, some people say he, just, he was just led away. Other people said he just disappeared. We can decide that on our own. The point is that he, that he, he, was, he, was, he was gone. It was like a hit and he baptized and he's on his way. But here's the deal. I was thinking about this and as we look at this piece here, he, I mentioned already the, how sometimes God's idea of what is important is different than ours. Just by the fact that the Lord had Philip talk to this eunuch. But the second thing is, again, that, that I alluded to this, he's reading the Bible, right? And it's confusing him. It's frustrating him. And when the question is, when, and when asked the question of, do you understand what you're reading? He responds, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invites Philip to help him understand. And, and I guess the purpose of a teacher uh, or, or a guide is to help us understand. That's all. And in my life, I can tell you that I've been helped countless times, especially when I was a young believer, certainly when I was a young youth leader, absolutely when I was a young pastor. I've been helped, and I continue in, indirectly, even by people who I've never met, but I've acquainted myself with their readings. And in their own way, they've become, even, some of whom, they're dead. They're not even alive anymore. But they, are, they have mentored me along the way. And to have a guide, though, to have someone that periodically can help us understand, this is something that every follower of Jesus is going to need. See, it wasn't just the eunuch. It's, it's, it's all of us. And so some of you are just like this man. You know, it, it, there's some things in the Bible that's kind of frustrating or you just, we don't get. And so, the, so what I'm hoping to do is to, is to sort of respond to something that was a kind of a twofold desire. I, I, in my own heart, what we're about to share in this week and in the few weeks that are coming is really motivated out of desire. There's two things happening. One, I felt a serious prompting of the Holy Spirit to do this. And I don't you, don't, you know me. I don't walk around saying God told me to do stuff. But I really felt it was important that I, I open myself up to just taking some time to laying some foundations for whoever wanted it as a way of helping some of us grow. And I initially I told you where it came from, and then and then and some of us I would I want us to I want us to help get into some deeper waters, and I want to help guide guide you if I can be a part of helping to guide you there, um, by the grace of God, then um, if it can be a benefit for greater clarity and understanding, then we'll have a success. Notice one more thing here, you guys. Do you see in this the connection between the Old and the New Testaments? It's all over this passage. I mean, you can't miss it. I mean, the church, you know, he's reading from Isaiah, a specific chapter, the towering prophecy of Messiah. Philip preaches to him in, using this passage, and he declares him to be Jesus, Jesus as the only begotten Son of God. So it's imperative as believers that we understand the relationship of Jesus to the, to the Old Testament so that anybody who's sincere about really understanding the Scriptures has got to appreciate the weaving of the old and the new. I've heard some people say, well, I just, you know, just kind of like to read the words of Jesus. That is really good. You know, you know, my favorite thing to teach from is the Gospels. I love the Gospels. I love to teach from the Gospels. I love this because Jesus was so narrative. He used story and metaphor. And so, and it, and it was such beautiful ways in which he engaged people. And his truth is, is endures forever. And we get that, and it's, it's amazing. And yet, at the same time, there's, there's so much more than just his words, because in a way, the entire Bible is his words. 
And I hope that we will be able to understand that, that all, Jesus is speaking from the old all the way through to the new. I kind of put that little, I don't even, it's just kind of like, and we'll talk about what it means as, as well later, but you can see how the Old Testament points to Jesus. And even the new, it, it points back and forward into eternity. But it's all about Jesus and the cross. And when we, when we understand that, it's going to help us in a really amazing way. So I want us to be able to appreciate really the value of the Old Testament and how it relates foundationally and historically to the New Testament and specifically how it, it connects us to Jesus. Okay? So remember that. We're, we're studying the Older Testament to understand how it connects us to Jesus and to understand what it means directly as well in and of itself. And the goal of learning is how to study our Bible better and... Um, how to find our way through the scriptures. Now, I have another handout there you saw from, uh, a, it's called a guy named Geisler there. You can see the, the article. I want us to look at it together if we can. And I would like to look at the part, <laughs> this is a bit of a little confusing little handout there. What will, there's a part that says Christ is the theme of both the Old and the New Testament. You see that? Christ is the theme, it's number one. Um, Norman Geisler, the popular survey of the Old Testament, something that I enjoyed reading a long time ago that I wanted to share with you. The most basic division of the Bible is that of the Testaments. This is, Christ is the theme of both the Old and the New Testament. Testaments, covenants, or compacts between God and his people. Both of the Testaments, both the Old and the New, are centered in Christ. The Old Testament views Christ by way of anticipation. The New Testament views him by way of realization. The Old Testament is incomplete without the New Testament. Salvation prepared for in the Old Testament was provided by Christ in the New Testament. What is commenced in the Old Testament is completed in the Christ of the New Testament. Christ was enfolded in the truth of the Old Testament, but, it, but is unfolded in the truth of the New Testament. The New is in the Old concealed, and the old is in the new revealed. That's a great phrase. What the Old Testament contains about Christ implicitly, the New Testament explains explicitly. For the truth only latent in the Old Testament is made patent in the new. The moral precepts of the Old Testament are brought to perfection by Christ in the new. What the Old Testament, look at you guys, foreshadowed the Christ of the new fulfilled. The ritual which, which prefigured Christ Types, it really prefigured Christ is done away in the reality of Christ. The Old Testament is filled with ritual and things that symbolically prepare us to receive Christ. There is so much depth there. We were talking about how you could just study the tabernacle that Israel carried, and you could spend months studying just that and, the, and where Christ is, both what that meant alone, that the church that they carried when they were making their way out of Egypt to the promised land, the tabernacle, and how so many things in the tabernacle are representative of New Testament Christian life. And yet there's, so there's a value in knowing the Old Testament for what it is, but also knowing for what it's getting us prepared for. He goes on to say a few more things. He says, this, these rituals which prefigured Christ is done away with in the reality of Christ. Old Testament types became new, become New Testament truths. Further, the many Old Testament prophecies which foretold of Christ are fulfilled in Christ in the New Testament. 
Christ often appeared in, in temporary pre-incarnations in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament, he is manifest in a permanent incarnation. God manifested or revealed himself through laws in the Old Testament, but in the life of his son in the New Testament. The Old Testament revelation was one of symbols, but in the New Testament, God spoke directly through his son. In short, the promises of salvation in the Old Testament are brought to fruition in the presence of Christ in the New Testament. The thematic unity of both Testaments is Jesus Christ. What the Old Testament says by way of anticipation of Christ, the New Testament says by way of realization in Christ. So this is, van, this is really a great way of appreciating the connection. G. Campbell Morgan said this, and this is, I'm not gonna, this is not in the handout that I gave you, but he said, in the Old Testament, we have an interpretation of human need, but in the New Testament, there's a revelation of divine supply. In the Old Testament, we have unveilings of the human heart, but in the New, we have the unveiling of the heart of God and the way he answers humanity's need in Christ. So once we kind of establish that, what I'm thinking would be helpful for us to do here is to also look at one more small piece of scripture before I just show us a couple of things about the divisions of the Bible. If you can turn with me to John 5, okay? John 5. John 5, um, I think I'll read this one out of the, the ESV, just for a different, just to try to do something different. All right. And I'm going to look, have us look at John 5, and we'll just jump in at verse 16. John 5, verse 16. And this was why the, the Jews, the, in John's gospel, when the Jews are referred to, he's referring to the Jerusalem leaders. Uh, everybody who followed Jesus, including Jesus himself, were Jewish. That's important, remember. And this was why the Jews were persecuted. The Jewish leaders were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Jesus had healed a man on the Sabbath. Okay, you guys, do you see from the very beginning here? If we're reading the life of Christ, and all of a sudden... We're going to see that there's this huge conflict that's going to occur in John 5. Now, to appreciate the conflict, which is all about healing somebody on the Sabbath, we have to have a working knowledge of where the Sabbath came from and what it is. So it, the very conflict itself that we're going to look at points us back to a presupposition of understanding the Older Testament. Do we, what I'm trying to say is, Someone who says they only want to read the New Testament and not understand the Old will never be able to appreciate, really, with enough sincere detail, what's actually happening without a working knowledge of the Older Testament. So if we're serious about understanding not just the life of Jesus, but also the New Testament epistles that Paul writes, the book of Acts, everything. You saw, we've already looked at that one passage. Philip's talking to him about a passage in Isaiah. Now we're here looking at the life of Jesus in John 5, and there's a whole controversy that emerges directly because of an issue about healing somebody on the Sabbath. Well, why was that an issue? Where did it even come from? What was the point of it? It had to do with something that they felt, felt very strongly about that was connected to the law of Moses, specifically one of the commandments which was, you shall not do any work on the Sabbath. And they had made it come to a conclusion, the, the religious leaders of Jesus' day in Jerusalem, at least many of them, that they had interpreted, well, what does actually constitute work? And they had these huge debates and writings extensively on what was work. And so Jesus is going to have issues 
because they're saying, you healed the man. For one thing, it shows you how locked in they were, how locked up they really were. Because the fact that the man was healed was like pushed aside. Their issue was, you did it on the Sabbath. <laughs> now think about that for a moment and understand why Jesus was so upset with them. They said, you know what, whatever else you did, we know how you healed him and, and it doesn't really matter to us anyway. What matters to us is that you healed him on the Sabbath and you made him take up his bed and walk and that is unacceptable and a violation of the law of Moses. Now here's the thing, they were absolutely sincere. They, that was not for them a, a small thing. Watch what happens. Watch the exchange, and as we're reading the exchange, think about how having a working knowledge of the Older Testament helps us appreciate what is going on. And then look for the point, as we're reading, when Jesus actually connects back to the Older Testament very specifically. Watch. All right? It says, Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are, you are well. You know, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. And the man went away and told the Jews, the leaders, what, it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why they were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, saying, My father is working until now, and I am working. Now, verse 18. And this was why, the Jew, the Jew, again, the Jewish leaders were seeking all the more to kill him, because no, not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but then on top of it, he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So anybody, by the way, who says that uh, Jesus was just a good man, as C.S. Lewis, and in one of my favorite little books ever called More Than a Carpenter, which we also have made available to you as well, all right? A little more than a carpenter. <laughs> I asked him to do it because, because it has a chapter that's so easy to read, and it has a chapter on the, the reliability of the biblical record, but it also has a chapter on Jesus that affected me when I was also beginning my journey with the Lord. And it was called Lord, Liar, or Lunatic. And he was working off the argument that Lewis proposed as well, where he said this, one thing we do not have is the option of calling Jesus a good teacher or a good man because he claimed to be things that he either was or wasn't. Now, if he wasn't the son of God, then he, and he knew it, then he was a liar. If he wasn't the son of God and he thought he was, then he was a lunatic. We only really have, Lewis pointed out, and McDowell makes a beautiful point around it as well, we only really have three options. He's either the Lord of glory that he said he was, or he is a liar, and not just a liar. If he knew he was lying about his identity, and tried to sell us a bill of goods, then, it, then that brings into question every other moral principle he taught to us. That makes him a hypocrite because he told other people not to lie. And then if he is lying about his own identity, one thing he cannot be is a good moral teacher. But other people say, well, maybe he just thought he was the son of God. If he just thought he was the son of God and he wasn't, then he's no different than a lot of people were standing on the corner saying, I am Jesus, or I'm the Messiah. And we go, they're, they're crazy, or, spirit, or something even worse. And, what Lewis, and, and the point is that Jesus, though, never modeled anything other than the absolute standard of, of mental health. That everything he does and everything he touched, every person he ministered to, every action he took spoke of someone who in absolute moral clarity and health, mental health as well. So he couldn't have been a lunatic. 
if he's not, the, but what he, what, what he says is this, he's either the Lord of glory, he's either the, a liar or a lunatic or the Lord of glory, but one thing he cannot be is just a good man. See, that, that, that's a big deal. What were they, we have to decide what Jesus is. But he didn't give us the option of, oh yeah, he's a good man. He's a, he, I think he has some nice, good things to say. I really admire him as a man. No, he claimed to be the son of God. Now, either he is or he isn't. As we, as we go on here, that's what they were upset with. Look at this, though. It says, Jesus said to them, truly, truly. And in the older version, it used to say, as I remember early on, I would hear, verily, verily. That's what I remember. I remember that, right? Truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing. See that why sometimes having a modern version is helpful. Uh, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the son gives life to whom he will. The father judges no one, but he has given all judgment to the son, that all may honor the son just as they honor the father. Whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes, look at this, whoever hears my words and believes them, believes him who sent me has eternal life. There it is, I've just told you. My words, if you believe them, you will have eternal life. And he who does not believe them will come into judgment. But he but has passed, and he does not come into judgment, but has passed, excuse me, but he, he does not come into judgment, but has passed from death unto life. He's commenting on the, those who believe. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, and those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Now Jesus is launching into this, into this you know, statement about the relationship of the Father and the Son. They say, you're making yourself to be equal with God. And he starts talking about the Father and ultimate judgment and the coming resurrection and the impact of his life as he conquers death. It's all in there. But then he says this, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just. You judge me. You say, I don't have the right to do this. I tell you this, my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. I alone bear witness about myself. My, testi in my, te my testimony, if I alone do it, my testimony is not true. But there is another who bears witness about me, and I know that that testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. That's John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist, not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. Now, just stay with me on this. He's basically saying this. What I'm saying to you right now, I'm not saying to you because I'm angry. I'm saying this to you because I want you to have life. As angry as I am with you right now, I speak this to you. I give you the truth because I want you to live. He was saying this to his enemies. And, he's, and, the, and the verse that I want us to get to is coming up, okay? It's, it's a critical verse for where we're going. He says, the testimony that I receive is from, is, is now, not that the testimony I receive, that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and a shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. They're talking about John, he's talking about John the Baptist. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John, but I'm, I, have a, I have a far more profound 
truth to share with you than even John gave. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. Look at this. Here's the key verse. You search the scriptures, the Older Testament. That's what he's talking about. Because you think in them you have eternal life. But it is they that bear witness about me. The very scriptures that you claim allegiance to and pour your life into, to know inside and out, he says, in those scriptures, there is the key that can unlock your heart to me. You should have seen me coming. You have the words. You have the words. What words did they have? They had the Older Testament. That's what he's saying. That's why I'm saying. We cannot just write off and say, oh, that's the old stuff. What did he say? You have the map that shows you who I am. It is there. Now, you're not reading it. Because if you were, you welcome me in right now. But you've rejected me. That was powerful. Very, very powerful. And then he goes on to say this. He says, yet you refuse to come to me. That you may live, you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. Wow. Wow. That's blazing. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. And if another comes in his own name, you'll receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. Don't, do not think that I, there is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. Now, again, what do we see, you guys? We see Jesus now reaching back into the Older Testament, into their Bible, into the Scriptures. Now he's pulling back. He says, the one that you adhere to and swear to and give allegiance to, the one whose teaching is causing you to be offended because of what I've done on the Sabbath, that Moses, that very Moses, is the one that if you really were reading what he was saying, you would know who I am. That's what's going on here. That is intense. And again, what does it show us? That to appreciate who Jesus is, we have to also go back to this, to the Older Testament as well. That you can't, we cannot, as sincere followers of Christ, anybody who's serious about it, we have to be able to spend some time acquainting ourselves with these teachings. And we have to know what they mean, what they're telling us, what they're teaching us, why they were given. Jesus brings it in. He says this. He says, for if you believe Moses, you would believe me. For he, he wrote, whoa, whoa, whoa. What did he do? He wrote about me. When? Mm. He, what did Jesus says? He wrote about me. It's there. You just don't see it. It's there. You've been looking at it. It's like we, uh, you know how sometimes you'll see people who are doing seminars? I, th I think Covey did it in one of his books. 
think it was the seven habits, actually, where you look at something and you, you have a picture of, 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 I think it was like two people, one, one you see an old woman, one you see a young woman, same picture, depending on how you look at it. They divide up a room, each people are looking and they go, I can't see it, I can't see it. I see that. The other one's saying, I can't see it, I can't see it, I see that. And it's not until they blend them together you see it. It's like because um, it required a, a paradigm shift often because we have blindness, we can see something that's right in front of us, we can't see it. He's saying, you can't see it, but it's right there. You've been reading it the whole time. You should have seen it. You should have seen it, but you've created roadblocks. You don't see it, but it is written. I am in there. I have, for if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, if you don't believe the very word that you say you believe in and built every system around, and you can't believe that word, you're not going to believe me because of anything I've done. That's intense. That's, that's intense. Okay, so I think we can all agree that if we're serious about following him, we're going to need to also spend some time understanding him out of the old. That's why some people don't even call it the Old Testament. I've been around some teachers who said, we don't call it the Old Testament, we call it the Older Testament. <laughs> so you have the older and the newer, but they're both covenants. You know, in the Bible, structurally, um, I've mentioned, I put this up there. There are two testaments. Sometimes people call them covenants. There's an old and a new. And the time that we have left, I just kind of want to sit, sit here for a bit. All right? And, I, and you're doing great. It says, um, in, in, the new, in the Old Testament, there, there are, I know this is kind of hard to read, but I just best said, there are 39 books in the Old Testament. There are 27 in the new. Uh, you know, 66, which is interesting, right? It shows you God doesn't, numbers, that's 66, right? It was written over 1,500 years by 30 or 40 authors. Now, um, just for the sake of time, look at the back of that handout. This is called the River of Inspiration. It's kind of interesting way of looking at things. Uh, the, notice that what we call the Pentateuch here, you guys are just going to kind of move through the river, all right? The Pentateuch, you can see it. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's called the Pentateuch in the Greek. It's a Greek word. It means five books. Five books. It's often called the law. So when Jesus talks about the law, when the, the law, it's, it's those five books, the law. We're going to talk about those things in a more detailed way as we move forward in the intensive. Then you can see that we have what's called the history you see how the Bible is sort of moves along. Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. That's another division of the Older Testament. Then you see what's called the poetry, right? So you have the Pentateuch, the five books. You have the 12 books of history from Joshua all the way to Esther. And then you have what's called the five books of philosophy, prayer, and poetry, from Job all the way to the Song of Solomon, sometimes called the Canticles, but Song of Solomon. See those five? And they're all different. These, these, these emphases are different. And then you have the 17 books that make up the rest of the Older Testament. This is how our English Bible has, has come to sit, but it, it's, it's been this way for a, lot of, a long time. You have what's called the prophets, and the prophets from Isaiah all the way to Malachi, right? Um, 
well, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Micah, Nahum, those are the minor prophets. You see the major prophets, but they're usually grouped together in 17. You can see, though, you have the majors, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, then Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. What, they constitute those 17. Uh, and, and then you have, if you go back through the silent years, about those 400-year period prior to the birth of Christ and the life of Christ, then all of a sudden you have what's called, often called the New Testament Pentateuch, the five books of the New Testament, which kind of match the five of the old. You see it? The four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. By the way, when we get to the New Testament intensive, when we end up doing that, we're going to talk about the uniqueness of each of the Gospels and what they show us uniquely about Jesus, each give us a different angle of Christ, has a different point of emphasis and a different way of creating a clear sense of who he is, but from a different perspective because it was going to a different audience. God's in it all. Acts is the, the continuing work of Christ in the church by the Holy Spirit. It's also historical. And then from there you see it goes into the, what we call the Pauline epistles. Remember I mentioned epistle is another word for letter. And this, these were initially passed down verbally, the, the Gospels, and then were written down. And then you had the Pauline epistles were letters to churches predominantly. And we saw Timothy's. We've been looking at Paul's letter to Timothy. But you can see what an impact Paul has um, uh, in the New Testament, these, these letters. And there's really 21 letters if you combine the Pauline epistles and the general epistles. The, the Paul letters and the general letters combined create 21 and then you have in a category all its own, sitting alone as the um, final um, song in, in, the, in the symphony, you know, the grand finale, the announcement that Jesus wins forever. Life wins. God wins. When history is done, the Lamb rises to the throne. It's about ultimate hope, purpose. It's the completion. Now, I say all that because this is the picture of, of the... Now, I put this little over here because the, the Jewish Bible, which was the Hebrew Bible, they, they divided their Old Testament. They had a different way of dividing it. They divided it by the law, the same five, but then they had the prophets. They had 21. They, they took the prophets and they divided it a little bit differently, and they had one book that was just called the 12, the 12 prof, minor ones. But the bottom line is, and then you had the writings, which they had 13. So it's a, so it a different, different way of grouping the Older Testament. Um, but it's the same essential you know, uh, writings. So, and, oh, and I put one more thing here. The Bible was written predominantly in three languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. Uh, Hebrew, by the way, a language that was resurrected and is now today the language of Israel. Most of the Old Testament written in Hebrew sometimes in Aramaic, which was the ancient language of Palestine. You'll hear periodically even Jesus say something in Aramaic, like Eloi, Eli, um, you know, Sabachthani, you know, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Or Tali, you know, Kumi, uh, Kumai, a little one, arise. They'll say any quote, quote or, or they'll say something like, Raka, you fool. You know, he uses terms that are Aramaic. And then the, new, and then the Greek, which I remember I mentioned to you that the Greek was the language, the English. It was like English of the Greco-Roman world. I mean, it was just the way. And they had a, a particular kind of Greek, which is called ancient Greek. That's not any, so it's not the Greek that they speak in Greece today. It was Koine Greek, which was common Greek. And uh, everybody knew Greek. And so this Greek. 
And as a result, they spoke it frequently. And the fact, so many of the Jewish people in, in the ancient world had become what they called Hellenized, or they had adapted into what we would say uh, modern culture, that they had taken, they were Jew, Jewish believe, believers and then also Jewish people who had, who had essentially um, become part of society culturally. They were called Hellenized Jews, or and and so much of the early church and was you know these are issues. You have two different kinds of, of of people, some who are very enculturated into Greek culture, and others who are sort of from Palestine and in Jerusalem. And, and they're, they're, in fact, the first real division in the, in the early church is over uh, the, the division around the Greek enculturated uh, uh, members of the church and the more Hebrew members of the church. I, I say all that because the Greek is the language. The, the Older Testament was actually written in Greek, the Septuagint. That was the version that was usually utilized because most people spoke Greek, Greek that kind of Greek. So I say all that, we say all that, and that's just kind of a real basic, basic run through on that. I'll, I'll sort of fi finish it up by having us look at Luke 24. Um, and I want us to just to sort of see this again, just to drive something home. I'll read this one out of the NLT. How about that? Just a little different version there. Demonstrating the dexterity of scripture and its ability to adapt quickly, although this writing is so small, I might, I might need to. All right. Uh, that same day, two of Jesus' followers were walking to the village of Emmaus, seven miles from Jerusalem, as they walked along. This is, okay, Luke 24, verse what did I say, 13, right? The same day two of Jesus' followers are walking to the village of Emmaus, seven miles from Jerusalem. This is after Jesus' resurrection, but they don't know he's alive. And as they walked along, they were talking about everything that had happened. And as they talked and discussed these things, Jesus himself suddenly came and began walking with them. But God kept them from recognizing him. And he asked them, he said, what are you discussing so intently as you walk along? And they stopped short, uh, sadness written across their faces. And then one of them, uh, um, Cleopas, replied, you got to be the only person in Jerusalem who hasn't heard about all the things that have happened in the last few days. And Jesus, showing us that God definitely has a sense of humor, says, well, what things? What do you mean, what? The, the things that happened to Jesus. The man from Nazareth, they said. You know what? He was now... They no longer can say that he was Messiah, the Son of God. That it's not going to be, what they will say was he was a prophet because he had died and that was it. He was a prophet who did powerful miracles. And you know what else? He was a mighty teacher in the eyes of God and all the people. But our leading priests and other religious leaders handed him over to be condemned to death and they crucified him. And we had, here it is, we had hoped he was Messiah who had come to rescue Israel. We thought he was, we believed he was, but clearly he wasn't. This all happened three days ago. That's what we're talking about. And then there were some women. They, they, they were from our group. Some of his followers were at his tomb early this morning. And they came back with this amazing report. They said his body was missing. They said they had seen angels who told them Jesus is alive some of our men actually ran out to sea, and sure enough, his body was gone, just as the women said, but implied 
that, that's, that's just too unbelievable. And Jesus said to them, Jesus said to them, you foolish people, you find it so hard. Now, look at this to the lens that we've been looking at things, okay? What does he say? You find it, look, he says, you find it so hard to believe all that the prophets wrote in the scriptures. <laughs> wasn't, wasn't it all clearly predicted that the Messiah would have to suffer all these things before entering into his glory? Come on! Then Jesus took them through, which had to be the most amazing Bible study ever, <laughs> all right? Because he took them through the... Can you imagine Jesus saying, let's go on a Bible study here. Um, he took them through the... Here it is, you guys. Through the writings of Moses and all the prophets. Here's two of the categories. So the writings of the law and the prophets and the writings. So he takes them through, the, he takes them through a long tour of the scriptures and explaining from all the scriptures things concerning what? Himself. It... It's the scripture, he says, testifies of me. And it predicted this. And it predicted also my resurrection. Do you understand this? So here's why I'm saying this. This is why you and I have permission to look at the Old Testament through the lens of Jesus. I'm not saying that we don't look at it in and of itself. I'm just saying that Jesus taught us to search the scriptures for they testify of me. So to have a familiarity with the Older Testament is to prepare ourselves also to receive the full message of Jesus. And any sincere follower of the Lord who wants to grow in their knowledge and understanding and love for Jesus needs to also acquaint themselves in a vibrant way with what we call the Older Testament. Paul goes on to say, this, this will be our... Closing verse, I've got more to share, but this is good. Let me, let me just, let me finish with the final verse, Colossians 3, 16. We'll look at that, and I'll read that out of the New King James. Colossians 3, 16. That's one of the epistles of Paul, all right? It's funny, when I was trying to memorize scripture and how to find it in the Bible, I had this thing I would do called jept. G-E-P-C-T. Just, that's just what I did to try to... Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Thessalonians. And so every time I try to remember, well, where does that thing fit in there? Oh, yeah, yeah, that's it. I know, it, it makes no sense. I don't know why. I did, that's just how I did it. And so Colossians 3.16. Um, I'll read this. We'll close with this. Loved ones, fellow students of the Lord, lovers of God that you are, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. The words of Jesus, his words, this book. In Timothy, we're told all scriptures given by inspiration of God, profitable for doctrine, correction, reproof, instruction of righteous, in righteousness. Let his wisdom, let his words dwell in you in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your heart to the Lord. And whatever you do, verse 17, in word and deed, do all this in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through his name. And of course, there's so many things about the Bible that need to be appreciated because many of the New Testament 
is predicated on the old, as we've seen. But I just want to, all I want to leave with is let the word of God, let the word of Christ dwell richly in you. Richly in you. That's very important, what we're doing. So where we're going in the days ahead, well, next three weeks, is we're going to, next week, Lord willing, start with the panorama of the opening of the Old Testament. And we're going to also look at key people in it. And we're going to try to get the big view. And we're also going to look at key geography because you'll hear things talked about where was this in relation to this. I think it's really helpful when we're reading to have an idea of how things fit together. What were the key rivers? What were the key, uh, what's the key sea? You know, areas that are referred to. We get a working, it's just, it's just designed to get us a working knowledge. Then later on, hey, you never know. Well, you may say, we're just going to dive deeply into one section. I've thought about bringing uh, some people in to give specific instruction around specific pieces of the Older Testament. I thought that might be really interesting to bring people around, but that's, that's stuff we'll get to. Next week, we'll also introduce some devotional, just a little devotional piece. Don't forget, if you don't have a, a scripture, um, we, we, we have some. If you want to have a different translation, you want to work with two translations, very easy uh, to start reading it. Um, you want to get a jump on it, you can start reading the book of Acts, because that's where we're heading in the fall message series, specifically on the conversion of Paul. Uh, just think about these things. You want to pick up the, the, uh, that book uh, on More Than a Carpenter. I recommend this book. It's a great book. I gave it to my, uh, my, my mother, mother-in-law. I said, you read this little book. It's, it's a little power-packed little book. That's where we, one of the arguments Lord, Liar, Lunatic is, which I think is a great, uh, great teaching. All right? Um, you guys have been amazing. I mean, honestly, just this is just amazing to me that you were so focused. That's great. I mean, Ian, some of you uh, maybe even wanted to get up, and, and, and yet you restrained yourself, and I... I <laughs> I'm humbled by that. So in the spirit of unity, uh, let's just, if we can, stand together, and I'm going to pray. Um, we're, we're exactly at 8.30, all right? So, Lord Jesus, I thank you for all of, and we speak oftentimes of what we share together as family, because family in you, it's not, it's not excluding our other family, it's just saying that we share a spiritual family. And uh, as brothers and sisters, we have, uh, we have a love for you that we hope will continue to grow and a love for your words. And I pray that our knowledge of grace and truth would continue to be enlarged and that we will take the tools that we are being given and we are working through and they will just become deeply embedded into our lives. And so I pray for blessing. I pray for a growing love for your words for they testify of you, that we would begin to embrace them. And I pray that some of us would just become amazed at how much we're starting to see things in your word that we've never seen before. Again, it's like that treasure chest out of which a man brings forth things new and old. And I pray that there would come just enlargement in our lives and a love for your words that would penetrate our life. So we commit to you, Lord, and we ask this blessing as we return to our homes and then we move into the rest of this week. We pray that we would spend some time with your words, let our heart be warm before you. We ask this in Jesus' name. 
Amen. All right. Blessings to all of you guys.